Hello, and welcome to another episode of How to Win 2024. It's Thursday, December 7th. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and I'm here with my co-host, Claire McCaskill. Hi, Claire. Did you watch any of the GOP debate last night? No, because I didn't have to, and who would unless you had to? (laughs) Totally. Right. I mean, talk about suck. I watched some highlights and lowlights. I will say this. I love Chris Christie just totally destroying that jerk. Uh, What's his name? Vivek Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy. Yeah, Yeah. right, right, right. But, you know, the nice thing about the Republican debates this year is they didn't, well, I don't know if it's a nice thing. They didn't change anything. They absolutely had no impact on anything. This was all about 28, right? Yeah, that's what Dan Pfeiffer, our guest today, uh, wrote in his little preview message box on it. But I'm interested in it as a sociological experiment of, like, at what point does the appeasement strategy break and reveal itself for, like, the emptiness that it is? Because even with Chris Christie, like, great, you're saying all this stuff now. You were Trump's. I mean, you you ran his transition. You ran his D. transition. Dude. I told him In Trump 2016. Dude. Yeah. So, um You know, I find that interesting. I know just from the talking points I've received from the Biden campaign that not anyone on stage criticized Trump for saying that he would be a dictator on day one. So I feel like that's all we need to know about what happened last night. But um, as we start to wind down the year, the likelihood of Donald Trump becoming the GOP presidential nominee appears inevitable. And he himself has been using recent interviews and rallies to paint a picture of what the second term in office would actually look like. And even just this week, the New York Times, the Atlantic, CNN, Axios, what we have seen from all of these outlets is that it's even worse than you imagined. Yeah, I want to tell everybody, we're not going to throw you into a, a doom spiral here. Um, We do have the former senior advisor to President Obama and current co-host of the acclaimed and amazing (laughs) podcast, Pod Save America. Dan Pfeiffer is here, and he's going to walk us through what Democrats can do to prevent a second term for the guy that some have called Orange Jesus. Uh, Before we go down that rabbit hole, we're going to share our winners and losers for the week featuring 2023's speakers, plural, of the House, um, and the military members who are finally getting their promotions. And then we'll shine a spotlight on the southern border and the politics of the southern border and how it is creeping in to Democratic base voters. And it is becoming a real issue that has to be dealt with and especially important this week since we have for the first time Republicans tying action on the southern border to support for Israel. Nothing like that has ever happened before. Okay, Claire, who's your losers for this week? Well, it's the it's the speakers, plural. It's hard to say what loser comment was the most egregious, but probably the biggest loser comment was when the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives thought it was a good idea to tell America that he was going to blur out the faces of people so they couldn't be prosecuted for crimes. I mean, like, pause a moment there. That is astounding. And by the way, The other silly thing about this performance politics he did at the podium of the Speaker of the House of Representatives was the Department of Justice has all these films. They've looked at all these films. By the way, Tucker Carlson. Of course they do. And Tucker Carlson has all these films. If there was some big smoking gun in these films, do you think Tucker Carlson would have grabbed that and made it a deal? He didn't do squat with these films. So that was bad. And and then tying aid to Israel to cutting funds for the IRS, not voting for George Santos expulsion. There's a long list. And we aren't even getting to how wackadoodle he is on some of his views. I think he went to a, a religious group 
and said that he he thought that God had spoken to him and that he was Moses, you know, so um, it's weird. And then you've got poor Kevin McCarthy wandering out into the desert of big money. (laughs) 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 You know, I have it on very good authority. He was already in New York yesterday at a luncheon rubbing elbows with the big Wall Street bigwigs. This is going to be a time for him to cash in, but it does highlight that the Republicans have become completely ungovernable. Subtlety has like never been that guy's strong suit. And I'm old enough to remember the young guns. Remember the young guns? This is when the Republicans took over the Congress during the Obama administration. And it was a book. It was Kevin McCarthy, Paul Ryan, and Eric Cantor. Two speakers of the House, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, Eric Cantor was the House Majority Whip. They were all eaten alive by the right wing. All of them were eaten alive by what they tolerated in their party. And this is what, you know, same thing for everybody on the stage of the debate last night, right? This is what comes to the people. All right, but there's good winners. The winners are the military members who can finally get their promotions because Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama is finally lifting his blockade of military promotions. He delayed for almost a year to protest the Pentagon policy that ensured abortion access for uh, service members. And after his announcement, the Senate confirmed all 440 service member promotions and one fell swoop. And this Biden said in the end it was pointless, except, again, it shows how uh, the, the bankruptcy of normalcy and being able to function as a democracy that the Republican Party continues to put forward. We have to completely not let him off the hook, though, Jen, because he is still holding totally. 11 four-star generals. Oh, and I know this. Those, uh, yeah, he's still holding four, 11 of them. And, and by the way, when he was interviewed after this happened, he said, oh, we fought to a draw. Well, this was not a draw. And he <laughs> talked about it in terms of who won this fight. So what you have here is you have a Republican senator from Alabama who is fighting the United States military over something that has nothing to do with the strength of our military or national security. And the idea that he is holding those four-star generals are a big deal. They are high in leadership in important places in the world. And so this is not completely over yet, although that's a manageable number for Schumer to force through through some long hours. And they may be sticking around for some long hours. Probably not. They'll probably be out of there soon. But certainly after the first of the year, I think Schumer can probably manage 11, whereas he couldn't manage uh, over 450. So that's the winners and losers for this week. Uh, I'm going to add one more winner as co-host prerogative of female creators. You know, So Taylor Swift noted as the person of the year, but as somebody who's, I've written two books about women, it is hard to write books about women. I have tried to sell television shows about women. It is very hard to do. You are told people don't want to read books about women. If you do write a book about women, you must put it in the form of lessons. So there's some kind of takeaway because God forbid would somebody would just read a book about women because they're interesting, Um, which I did, by the way, fine. Number one New York Times bestseller. So people are interested. And also they're not interested in television shows about women. Um, But Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Greta Gerwig, economic gains, right? People are making money off of women. People are making money off of fuchsia. They're making money off of women's music. They're making money off of women's movies. And not to be crass and commercial, but that is going to have a big impact in Hollywood. It's, I think it's like shattering a really important glass ceiling to show women artists are commercially viable, and it's a really big deal. And speaking of people who are good allies to women, I just want to tell one quick story about our friend Dan Pfeiffer, who's going to be joining us. Um, 
In 2011, Dan and David Pluff asked me to come to the White House to be the deputy communications director. Dan was White House communications director. And I was a little skeptical because the Obama White House has, as it turns out, people wholly unfounded, unfair, wholly unfounded reputation for being like an insider's club and like a boys club. And I was like, I don't know. These guys are talking a big game about how I'm going to have a lot of access and be part of the real strategic group. And like, I don't know if I can believe them. But I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Day one, we get in, senior staff meeting, the little small strategic team meeting in Pluff's office, only three other people. And they're like, okay, come on, we're going. I was like, where are we going? They're like, to the Oval. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, these guys were not BSing me. Like, <laughs> like, this is for real. Like, time to step up to the plate and take advantage of this opportunity I've been given. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm delighted to have uh, my friend and Pod Save America's Dan Pfeiffer to help us break down Trump's threat for a second term. Welcome back. In recent weeks, Donald Trump has made his plans for a second term clear. He wants to use the DOJ to go after his political adversaries, implement the Insurrection Act to launch the military on domestic soil, jeopardize health care for millions of Americans by repealing the Affordable Care Act, just to name a few. Our guest here today is to unpack Trump's second term threats and what we can do to prevent it from happening. He was my predecessor as White House Communications Director before going on to serve as Senior Advisor to President Obama and co-host of the political podcast Pod Save America. Please welcome Dan Pfeiffer. Hi. Thanks for having me. It is great to be here with you guys. Yeah, let's get right to it. Dan, I've read the stuff you've written, and I think one of the problems we have is people forget. And there is a certain numbness that sets in about the outrageous stuff that he has done and said. How would you be advising the Biden camp if they ask you for your advice? How is the best way to message this to help people remember? And how do you see that challenge? Because frankly, if people remember some of the really bad stuff and you juxtaposition that with some of the stuff he's saying now, it, it is beyond startling. It's it's just downright scary. So I think a couple things. First, one thing that's very hard for people like us and the people probably listening to this podcast and you know, listen to Pod Save America and you read my Substack who obsess about politics 24-7. This is a passion of ours. We care about it. We pay attention to it. We are very different than the vast majority of the public. And the way the media has changed in recent years is social media platforms have stopped really promoting political news. People have, to, have cut the cord. They're not paying attention. What has happened is that most Americans have really not thought about Trump for more than like five minutes since January of 2021. They haven't seen him speak. All these things we're talking about, the Atlantic, they think it's an ocean, not a publication. Right. <laughs> they do not know any of this. And you see this in the polls. People are much more focused on Joe Biden than Donald Trump right now. And many of them are going to be quite surprised when they find out that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee in a few months, as we all expect. So it is right. going to be absolutely essential for the Biden campaign to paint a vivid and specific picture of what a Trump second term looks like. Because one of the challenges they have is that there is a lot of nostalgia, even among some of our voters, for some aspects of life pre-March 2020, particularly the economy and the cost of goods. And there was a fascinating Democracy Corps poll that's this Democratic group with from James Carville and Stan Greenberg and some other former colleagues of Jen's, yep. where they asked people's retrospective approval rating of Donald Trump's presidency. And even among some core Democratic groups, including Black voters, Latino voters, 
LGBTQ voters. Tr- Trump has a higher retrospective approval rating than Joe Biden has right now. And so we have to paint this picture in a couple ways in which that we have is to like do a stunning. It. That is a stunning thing. It's a stunning thing. Yeah. yeah. It's impossible for people like us to think about, but people process politics through their bank accounts and through their grocery bills. And while inflation is coming down, the cost of all these goods are still up, right? Housing costs are incredibly high. Yeah. And if your rent is up, it's harder to buy a house. It's harder to sell a house. And so we have to paint this picture, but we have to do it in ways that are very specific to how it affects people's lives, which is why I think Trump's very odd admission that he's going to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act is a huge gift to Democrats, because that's something people understand. Here's something you have, Donald Trump wins, and it's going to go away. And so we have to focus on things like that as opposed to some of these more very meritorious but somewhat esoteric arguments about the kind of authoritarian Trump will be. I have heard that, by the way, you know, I talked to a truck driver um, in Iowa, for example, who voted for Biden, and he's like, I'm going to vote for Trump because uh, gas prices are cheaper, you know, and I, I saw a focus group the, of black women voters in Michigan. This one woman's like, look, Trump's a racist, but my 401k was doing better. And I think that, yeah, for people like us, it's disorienting because he's becoming more dangerous at the same time he seems becoming more palatable to a more diverse and larger base of voters. But like, Pfeiffer, what do you think—you you don't drop the democracy argument altogether, right? You don't drop the existential threat argument altogether. Like, there's, like, what the Biden campaign does, then there's, like, what people outside the Biden do. Like, what do you think the Biden campaign does now? Like, how do you stage these arguments? It's now about accomplishments. It's now about contrast on substance like health care. When do you build in the arguments about the sure. democratic threat? So I think one, th- let's start with the democratic threat for a second, which there is a real, there are real two sides to this coin. And when we say that Donald Trump is going to destroy democracy, he's going to be the end of democracy, what that sounds like to a certain yeah. segment of voters is that Donald Trump is going to take a flamethrower to a political system that the, that the vast majority of voters believe is corrupt and not serving them. And the cynicism and distrust in institutions and the government and politics in particular has never been higher than it is right now. And we have and at times, not always, and I think President Biden's been particularly good about this in 2022, but we put ourselves sometimes in a position of becoming defenders of a corrupt political system. And so I think it's less about democracy and more about freedom. So that's one. Mm-hmm. Two is when you talk about it, you have to be very specific about the ways in which Trump will weaponize the federal government to impose an unpopular extremist agenda that he cannot get through Congress. And one very resonant example is the efforts pushed by the Heritage Foundation to put in place a de facto federal abortion ban because they know if it can't pass Congress, rather what he's going to do to help corporations to get rid of rules that ensure clean air and clean water. It just has to be very specific to people as opposed to just this argument about a political system, right? There was a Pew poll a couple months ago. 4% of Americans are hopeful about politics. The vast majority of Americans use the words angry and exhausted to describe politics. Four percent of Americans think that the American political system is working well. I mean, we all would. Yeah, that's right. right. I mean, they're not wrong, right? The voters are not wrong. Joe Biden does not have to win this campaign today, right? As you point out, it has to be staged. And so the thing that really is over the next several months is to, one, begin to draw a little more focus to Trump. And you're seeing that from the campaign and some of the digital ads they've been doing, some of the stuff they've been doing online with the Biden HQ accounts, which is just lifting up these Trump clips that people are not otherwise seeing. 
And what they're really doing is they're sending a signal to people like us to share those with people in our networks, right? Either if they're folks like us who have somewhat larger social platforms or just people in their group chats with their families. Like, here's examples of why I told you Donald Trump is dangerous. And so they're helping us with that. Over the next several months is going to be simply strengthening people's impressions and confidence in Joe Biden himself. Right. Everything right now is flowing from the fact like people are upset about the economy, but the 22 point gap between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on the economy right now has everything to do with that. 71 percent of voters think Joe Biden's too old for the job. Right. That number was 34 percent in 2020. So that's how much that's gone up, that there are the number of voters who think that Joe Biden does not have the mental fitness for the job has gone up 17 points since 2020. I think that is a resolvable issue with enough voters to win, but it's going to have to be from seeing Joe Biden right, from proving to them that he can do the job. And that, once you make some progress there, even if it's only with the 14% of 2020 Joe Biden voters who are currently not voting for Joe Biden, that'll go a long way to creating some momentum in his numbers by improving. It'll improve across the board. People have not looked at every single issue and decided they can't trust Joe Biden based on his policy positions. They've made that decision because they don't think he can do the job. He can obviously do the job. He's been doing the job with incredibly well, but he's got to communicate that to voters. I think you're right. I don't think the idea of protecting him or wrapping him in bubble wrap or keeping him away from the moments where Joe Biden is Joe Biden is going to work. I'm curious about one thing as a communications professional. Donald Trump is a marketer, and his theory of marketing is you market what you want by saying whatever you want. It does not have to be true. And the only way that the Biden campaign can really fight that is by, in many ways, visual pictures of Trump saying things or doing things. I noticed for the first time he started saying that the Biden people and the White House and all the leftist Democrats are using AI to alter his images and alter what they're showing of him. So he has already got a strategy to overcome some of the most bizarre things he said that they could clip and use in pretty powerful ads in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania and places like that by planting that seed that this is all manipulated images. Have you given a lot of thought on how campaigns are going to overcome that? Because that is a little scary because I grew up in campaigns where a picture is worth a thousand words. And the reason we've spent millions of dollars over the years on trackers is so that we have (laughs) candidates saying things that can be used in a way that will be effective in a campaign. How is how is him injecting this AI thing in it going to impact our ability to communicate? It's incredibly clever, I will say, because uh, you remember a few years ago, Trump went to the VFW convention, I think it was in your home state of Missouri, where he said, it was in the middle of, I think, when one of his impeachments was going to happen, and he said, don't believe what the press says, believe me, right? You know, this very Orwellian quote, and that's what he's doing here is, don't believe this video you see, it doesn't matter who it comes from, just trust me when I tell you it's not true, even if it is true. Now, I think the major impact of that is largely going to just be with his voters who are going to be with him anyway. But what he's very good at is creating a permission structure for the people who agree with Trump on some things, don't really like Joe Biden, are looking for reasons to come home to their tribe, right? Um, And that's what part of this is. One of the things that I think um, I've seen in focus groups it, when it looks at look at these ads is the the videos of people still work. People still believe it. And most voters don't fully understand 
deep fakes and stuff like that, it will have an impact, but I think it do, that doesn't take that tool off the table. But actually, the most effective type of ads that our mutual friend Celinda Lake told me that she saw in her work in 2023 was purely testimonials of voters, right? Just people to camera telling a story about why Joe Biden's good or why Donald Trump's bad or how it affected his, his economy. And so those are the sort of the two kinds of videos that are kind of video content we're going to have to do. And this is going to be really challenging because we did, there are no guardrails this time, right? There is no mainstream press with the reach into the vast majority of voters to say that what Donald Trump is saying is not true. And we're gonna ha- we're just gonna have to fight back as hard as we can. There has never been a more challenging communications environment for a Democratic campaign than the one that Joe Biden and his folks are embarking on right now. And this is just the AI thing is just one more element because the right will use some BS about AI to disavow true things, and then they will use the technology of AI to create untrue things that will circulate online to suggest that Joe Biden is unfit to do the job in some way, shape, or form. Um, How big do you place abortion and gun safety in the conversation next year? Both those issues are going to be incredibly important, particularly with 18 to 29-year-old voters, who are the group in which Joe Biden is struggling with the most right now from his 2020 coalition. They're incredibly important, have to be talked about a lot. Abortion particularly has to be at the top of the agenda. It's great that there are efforts to get abortion referenda on the ballot in some swing states, which will help as it did in Michigan in um, 2022. We do have to recognize as Democrats that the midterm electorate puts much higher importance on quote-unquote social issues like abortion, guns, and democracy than the presidential election electorate does. In the New York Times, Siena poll did a very interesting thing where they asked people which would affect their vote more, economic issues like jobs, cost of goods, taxes, or social issues like abortion, guns, and democracy. In the midterm electorate, the social issues did much better. In a general election electorate, economic issues were overwhelmingly more important. So that 30 to 40 percent of voters who did not vote in 2022 are going to come in 2024 are going to be much more sensitive to the economy. And so the, you know, the quote unquote Dobbs and democracy strategy has to be a huge part of the strategy, but we're not going to be able to succeed like we did in 2022, where a whole bunch of people who told pollsters they disapproved of the economy or that inflation was incredibly important to them will vote for Democrats anyway. I don't think that will be sufficient. So we're going to kind of have to do both. I'm I'm just curious, though. It was interesting to me because I was on a Meet the Press segment with uh, a Republican consultant. And I remember it because it was uh, there were two women on the panel. And this was a discussion about how important Dobbs would be. And he said, well, the polling shows that abortion is not even in the top three or four issues. And I looked across the table at the other woman and I said, well, we'll see. I think you're wrong. Women are really pissed off. To me, it's such a motivator for the enthusiasm Mm -hmm. quotient, which is clearly one of our big problems, right? It's just hard for me to imagine that young people are okay with a nationwide abortion ban. And it'll be interesting to see how this actually plays out. It is absolutely essential that we make the case that a, a Donald Trump victory, because he will probably bring along a Senate and a House with him if that were to happen, will lead to a federal abortion ban. Yeah. That is absolutely essential. And abortion works in two ways, right? I think, as I pointed out, a lot of political consultants, particularly male political consultants, think this issue will fade. It is never going to fade. As long as there are abortion bans, because more than half this country is either living under an abortion ban or lives in fear of living under an abortion ban, also works as a very important avatar for Republican extremism. Right. It is for the freedom, the argument about how they're going to affect freedom. This is evidence that it can happen. And so keeping it at the top of the agenda is critically important. 
is part of the political conversation and not allowing Trump to sort of wiggle out of this with his sort of verbal applesauce about what he would do. A Donald Trump presidency means <laughs> an abortion ban, and it means the weaponization of the federal government to try to be a nightmare for reproductive freedom. That is what will happen if he wins, and everyone has to know that. Verbal applesauce, is, that's good. That's like your new mm-hmm. Mad Lib, political Mad Lib. That's good. I haven't <laughs> heard that yet. That's what the November elections, Virginia and New Jersey of 2023 taught me, like, the abortion is not going away. Like, the 15-week moderate stands got crushed in Virginia. And then in New Jersey, where, like, it was a, there's a second, the governor, the governor Theron is in, is in his second term. There were no issues driving anything really in New Jersey. And the Democrats picked up five seats, right? So, like, but your point that a midterm electorate is, you know, is is more engaged, more educated, more likely to turn out over these issues than the presidential. That is, like, a really important thing. But I'm interested, you talked about a freedom agenda, right? Or that running against Trump by saying he's going to take away freedom. I think that's really smart. Do you think that there should be, the degree to which it's useful, like a umbrella sort of pro-freedom alliance with outside group that's uniting the outside game. Everyone can have it be what, you know, that could, the abortion groups can run on that. The environmental groups can run on that. Because I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, everything he'll try to do to thwart Congress with this power. Do you think something like that would be useful? I pitched this idea in 2022 when things looked much more hmm. dire than they ended up being, and no one took right. me up on it, and we won everywhere, so I can't really hmm. speak to the validity, to the merits of my idea. But I think it would be very helpful to have a overarching argument about freedom, right, that is about abortion, it's about Republican yeah. efforts to ban books, which 8 in 10 voters think is insane, about having the government dictate what teachers can teach, kids can read, Decision parent decisions parents can make, what doctors can prescribe. Because that I think the element of a big government run by unpopular extremist politicians getting into your personal life. Right. And Mike Johnson is a great part way to do that argument. So yeah, I think that I think that that should definitely be a part. Uh, a very real part of the argument, and and particularly in messaging to these young voters who agree with us on all these issues, but are planning on that voting, dissatisfied with their choices, are currently, although I think a lot of them will come home, we're currently telling pollsters that they're going to vote third party. That's a way to do that. And, and I think having some sort of overarching agenda is helpful because it's just so hard to get a message in front of people. So the idea that you're going to talk to them once about abortion, once about book bans, once about reproductive, about contraception is very, is sort of unrealistic. So having it in one place would be helpful, I think. Yeah. All right. That's really smart. You know, people who have talked to me about this podcast have said, you know, you make us feel better. But there is amongst the people who are listening a, a sense of, I feel helpless. What can I do? I, I meet people on the street in New York, especially in, in bright blue states. What can I do to help? I feel like I am just worrying. I need to put this energy to work. I mean, you've been on a gajillion campaigns. I think between the three of us, we probably <laughs> have been on more campaigns than we want to admit. But what would you suggest to the listeners of this podcast about what they can do now to help pave the way for keeping Donald Trump out of the White House next year? This election is likely going to be decided by fewer people than attended a Taylor Swift concert. Like, that's how narrow it's going to be. And that, that, that audience of people is going to be spread across six states. And that is both something that can paralyze you with fear, 
but it can also be incredibly empowering because what it means is the seemingly small things we're doing in our lives are making a huge difference in the margin. And I think the internet, the media, even politics has gotten smaller in recent years. What I mean by that is the way in which we are communicating now is not, there's not a way to go get on TV and reach the whole country. There's not a way to get on social media and reach large portions of the country. The way that communications is now done is through people like our listeners here communicating with the people in their lives, right? It can be when they go knock doors for a campaign, but it's also in their family group chats, in the text threads, you know, and there was a Something that Paul Tuzer ran the uh, Iowa for Obama in 2008 used to say is every interaction is an organizing opportunity. And we should think about that in our own lives. And I get this all the time. It's like everyone who listens to Pot Save America, they're already with you, right? Well, the way we think about it, maybe this is just what helps us uh, feel good about ourselves, and this is what you guys are doing, is that we are you are telling people not just what to know, but how to talk about it. So every listener is a force multiplier because now they can go out They understand some of the things we just talked about, maybe about how to talk about democracy, how to talk about the Affordable Care Act, and communicate that in their lives. And now, because digitally, we're connecting people all across the country, even though I live in California, because I have friends who live in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Georgia, who I'm connected to through social media or through the contacts on my phone. And so we can all use that. The Biden campaign is going to do some really smart things, I think, to help enable that and supercharge that relational online organizing, but just in general, we now have the ability to do that. And so talking to a few of your friends who maybe, you know, and I always say to people, you don't have to go convince your MAGA uncle to take his red hat off. What you have to do is go find your Biden skeptical cousin (laughs) who voted in 2020, who's kind of pissed about a lot of stuff and convince them why why their vote matters. And that's all we can do. But given how we think how close this election is going to be, it's going to be enough. I think you're right. And, you know, I think the term you used, online organizing, people have more power than they realize. And you can organize people online. You can figure out a way to get a chat going of people that have good information. And you can ask all of them to expand that chat to people who maybe are on the fence. And and, and you don't want to, like, yell at anybody and tell them they're stupid or how could you not vote for Joe Biden. You really just want to talk about pre-existing conditions. And you want to talk about the affordability of f- pharmaceutical drugs. And you want to talk about, uh, you know, more jobs and bridges and highways and all of the things that you can get everybody nodding their head are good things. So I think that online organizing is something that everybody who's listening can do and you can begin right now. Uh, You've been terrific, Dan. We are lucky to have had you. It was a real get for us. Thank you, Jen, for uh, talking him into it as an old friend. And as somebody who is an alumna of the 2008 Obama campaign and will always look back at that time fondly and how it felt on the ground as it moved from January to February to March to that amazing night in Chicago on election night was it was really special. And I know you are a huge part of it. So America thanks you for that too. Thank you guys. Thanks, Pfeiffer. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we're shining a spotlight on immigration and funding for Ukraine and Israel. Welcome. 
Welcome back. The clock is ticking for lawmakers to pass an aid plan for Ukraine and Israel, but House Republicans, led by Mike Johnson, are pushing to tie that aid to ensuring tighter security at the southern border. And recent polling shows border security is becoming a top concern for some Democrats, too. Claire, what are your thoughts here? Well, I I think it's really interesting that McConnell has folded in the Senate. He is seeing the support waning for Ukraine, and he is seeing a politically winning issue on the southern border. I don't think those of us who have been close to the immigration problem for many years have a full appreciation that there's been a shift and that there are now, I know, a recent NBC News poll found that three in four registered voters, 74% support more funding for security at the U.S. border, including 93% of Republicans, 74% of independents, and 58% of Democrats. That is a number that everyone should take note of. And believe me, Mitch McConnell and the House Republicans have. They believe this is an issue, and so does Donald Trump. Even though he said he'd build a wall in Mexico, pay for it, and it was bull, he is going to continue to beat this drum. And independent voters and swing voters really do believe that our southern border is open. And I think we're not going to get aid to Israel, and I don't think we're going to get aid to Ukraine unless there is a meaningful change, not just in funding, but in policy at the southern border. And uh, I think everybody needs to be aware that that's just a political reality right now. And it, it, it just doesn't work what's going on right now. And it, I think more Americans, especially, I mean, you and I talked about this, yeah. Jen, when those governors, which we thought was just pure performance politics sent busloads of immigrants to Chicago and to New York and to the Northeast. It, it impacted people, and people's views have, have shifted on it. It's, it's something I think we ought to pay attention to. It has not been fair that the border states have had to bear the brunt of this problem, and it just keeps compounding because Congress doesn't do anything to solve it. So, like, it is unfair to President Biden and to Democrats to hold them responsible for this because it's a political strategy. The Republicans make a, politi- it's a political strategy to make immigration an issue. It is a political strategy for them to also do nothing about it so that it continues to be a problem politically for the Biden administration and for Democrats. But, you know, I think people see it. It's also about fentanyl coming over the border. There's the security concerns. What do you think are are, are real? What do you think the Biden needs to be doing about it? Like, how does the Biden administration handle this so it's not a vulnerability next year? Yeah, I was part of the group that voted for immigration reform in 2013. It was a bipartisan vote in the Senate. It went to the House, and the Republicans controlled the House, and they refused to take it up. There is still people on on both sides of the aisle that think we can do better. We can certainly do better on the process. What's happening now is people are just showing up, and they're not trying to evade. They're just showing up and saying, I want asylum. And because of the sheer numbers, it's overwhelming the system. And so the two points of view here are, do we change your ability to come into this country just by claiming you come from a poor and dangerous country? Or do we change the process by which we handle people who show up and say that they want asylum? And that's the rub. But the notable thing of this, and I think we should not end this podcast without stressing this, never in my 12 years in the United States Senate did I ever see anyone willing to put conditions on aid to Israel, ever. It was an oasis of bipartisanship. The votes to aid Israel to fund the dome that has repelled 
thousands of rockets over the last decade. All of that was so bipartisan and it was so standalone. And the fact that Johnson said, we will not fund Israel unless you cut the IRS, uh, that is a remarkable thing to have happened. And for the groups that have worked so hard to keep support for Israel bipartisan. I think Netanyahu started this. I think he set it off when he became mm-hmm. very partisan, when he came to Washington in 2017 and in 2018. I, I think this is the end of an era of unqualified support for Israel no matter what. And it's a hard issue, but it is notable that the Republicans are tying other things to helping Israel right now. I don't know how it's all going to shake out, but it's something that we needed to shine a spotlight on. I think that for the administration, and I know that the White House, you know, I know the White House is worried about border security. They have their own border security package. It's not as if they are not trying to advance a solution there. I think to blunt this vulnerability for next year, they probably need to, they need to talk about that more, make that be known more, that they have this package, what they are doing to try to prevent it. And the contrast of, I think it's really important for people to know, the Republicans don't want to solve this problem. (laughs) No, they don't. They don't. It is their political advantage to continue to not solve the problem. So many people in my life ask me, well, why are the Democrats, you know, why isn't, why isn't we're saying, because the Republicans have not wanted to do that. And we had an opportunity 10 years ago to pass a bipartisan bill. They killed it and they have been using it as a wedge issue ever, ever since then. And the same with Israel, you know, the White House, what, what are you doing to ensure to the best of your ability that Israel is prosecuting this war with human rights in mind and for us to understand where the U.S. is standing and what they're trying to convince Israel to do. All right. I think that's it. Thanks so much for listening, friends. We'll be back next week with much more. As always, if you have a question for us, you can send it to howtowinquestions at NBCUNI.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 646-974-4194 and we might answer it on the pod. The senior producer for this show is Alicia Conley. Jessica Schrecker and Ivy Green are segment producers. Bryson Barnes is the head of audio production. Our audio engineers are Fernando Aruda and Harry Colhane. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. 